I want to go ahead and jump in, and then for those of you who don't know me, don't know my story, you're going to hear about it as we go, so that'll be great. Um, so if you have your Bibles, it's totally fine if you don't, the scripture will be up on the screen, um, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Esther, um, and we're going to go to the end of chapter 6. Um, so I know that Patrick hasn't preached through chapter 6 yet. Um, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, uh, but it is an exciting chapter with a lot of twists and turns. He's going to talk about that next week. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and jump into um, what's going on with Esther and the king. Chapter 6 is a lot more about Mordecai and Haman. So I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then um, we will get going. Um, Esther 6, verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the, t- by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words, sa- whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And, a- and the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Um, so spoiler alert from last week, Mordecai did not get hung on the gallows. Um, Haman did instead. Um, can I? Yes. Great. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so a year ago last weekend, one of my best friends and I went on a road trip through New England. Um, we left to hike, and so we went hiking, camping, checking out fall leaves, um, eating all the fall food, like, you know, apple cider donuts and all those wonderful things, um, and just kind of encouraging and praying for each other. It was a little bit of a, re- a retreat for the two of us. Uh, she's an international missionary, and so it was exciting to have her home and get to do that. Um, and on that trip, Allie said something kind of peculiar to me. Uh, she just looked at me, totally normal, we're driving in the car, and she said, um, I believe God is giving me the word queen for you. I don't know why. See it through scripture. See if, it's, if anything is there, but I think that's what he's telling me. Now, since I trust Allie and I know that her faith in God is real, I listen to her, even though this freaked me out a little bit. Um, at first, the only correlation coming to my mind with queen is the idea of royalty. So, of course, I'm like, oh, God, are you going to send me a king to marry? Is that what's going to happen? Um, I pondered it for a few weeks, and um, nothing really seemed to sit. So I was kind of like, okay, I'll just tuck it away and see what happens from there. Um, But then, a month later, I was practicing solitude, which, as a side note, makes me sound very spiritual. I am not. I'm very bad at practicing solitude, but people have repeatedly spoken this into my life that I should practice it. So every once in a while, I try to just put distractions away and kind of sit in silence for 10 minutes with varying results. Um, So I was doing that one day, um, and a few thoughts popped into my head. And so I ended up writing this prayer in my journal afterwards. Dear Lord, what would it mean for me to be patient, to trust that you are in complete control, to rest in your power and sovereignty? These are the themes that just keep popping up. These are the concepts you want me to see and experience. Help me to have eyes to see and ears to hear, to notice and respond to the still small voice. 
Tonight as I sat in solitude, you brought my mind back to the word Allie gave me, queen. I pondered it again, trying to hear the significance and to know what you're saying. And the thought popped in. What are the other times the word queen is used? Like, I don't know, for example, in chess? I pondered what I remembered from my limiting, limited playing years ago, and then when my time of solitude was over, I researched online, Lord. Here's the thoughts I jotted and gathered about the queen in chess and the metaphor it provides. She has a lot of power but stays where she is until needed. She is not scrambling and always poised. She's extremely strategic. She's unshaken and not rattled. She's at peace. Um, being impatient with the queen in chess often exposes her to weaker attacks that just waste time and energy. She's very mobile. She represents a modern power that hasn't always been appreciated, and she's essential in the game. God, how many of these themes resonate with what you're already saying to me? It was a bit shocking, to be honest. The queen's gambit popped into my head, and I think I'm going to start watching it tonight. <laughs> and then, God, as I'm reading Augustine's confessions, I didn't realize how raw they were going to be. They're so personal. It felt very intimate and much like the conversations we share, although way wiser. I just can't help but wonder, what are you up to? I know you're commanding me to be patient, but honestly, it feels like a drudgery right now. I want the patient, expectant waiting to be a joy. Help it to be a joy. Shape my heart to delight in trusting you. Amen. And then that was it for the time being. Nothing major happened after that. It wasn't like a lightning bolt came down after I finished writing my prayer. I just went on about my day. But then a few months later, I felt the tugging of the word queen again. And so I asked a friend to help me relearn how to play chess. It had been a very long time. There's more to learn here, I knew. And then a few months later, I was struck with the thought that I should start studying Esther. And then a few months later, Patrick announced our fall sermon series, The Queen's Gambit, studying the book of Esther and the metaphor of a chess game. So when I say that I've literally been preparing for this sermon for a year, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> um, but I am really excited to see um, what God's going to do through that. So let's pray to get started. God, I just want to thank you so much for um, the opportunity that you have um, given me to be a vessel for your word. I ask that you would um, use the words that you've given me, that anything that is not going to bring glory to you would not come out of my mouth, and everything that is would be said, and said in a way that it could be heard, um, and draw people closer to you. Um, please soften our hearts in here this morning to hear the word that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've got this story with Esther. Now, up to this point, we know that, you know, quick rundown, the Jews are at risk of being annihilated. Um, Haman really hates them. Haman also extra hates Mordecai. And Mordecai has gone to Esther and said, hey, we're going to die. You're included. You don't get out of that. And so um, we need to do something about this in order uh, to save our people. And so she's a little bit hesitant at first, but then she ends up saying, um, please, like, pray and fast for me, and then I'm going to go to the king. She goes to the king. She asks him for a banquet or a feast. Um, they have a feast, and then she asks him for another feast. Um, so we're kind of like, okay, deja vu at this point. What's happening? Um, so when we leave off in chapter 6, um, we know that, again, spoiler alert, Mordecai did not die. We'll talk more about that um, next week. And Haman is kind of feeling a little off. I'll let Patrick jump into that. So then Haman is immediately hurried away to a feast. He's probably in a vulnerable spot at this point because he just had his pride like nicked a little bit. Um, but he's also probably still leaning on the fact that, okay, my other plan didn't work, but um, 
God's going to be, uh, or not God, that uh, we're going to be killing all the Jews soon anyway, so it's going to be fun. Uh, and then he goes to this feast that he was so honored to attend and so excited for. And what's crazy to me is I love, I didn't realize this until I was studying it. It says on the second day, Esther said, blah, 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 blah. So at this point, they've, you know, we know the king loves his big feast. They've had his giant feast where um, Queen Vashti was banished. Then he had this little feast where he was invited to another feast. And now he's on the second day of that feast. So the man likes to party. So he's partying, probably feeling pretty good at this point. Um, And then Esther swoops in. And this is the moment that Patrick was talking about where everything has been building up to this point. And so Esther steps in and she is um, able to speak the truth. She appeals to his love for her. She says, your wife, which is such a good move, (laughs) your wife is in danger. Um, And uh, she's clear about the truth of what's happening to her and happening to her people. Um, She takes a personal investment in the issue. Um, She doesn't say like, this is what's happening to the Jews. Um, No, like this is what's happening to me. and then the king is like, well, who would dare do such a thing? I love as a side note that like he was totally culpable in this, but she didn't say, well, you. Um, she was very strategic right now, just like in chess. Um, and she uh, said that vile Haman. Now, I like to picture this as like a movie with all kinds of twists and turns going on. So we've just had um, Haman trying to set up plots against the Jews. Doesn't work out. He's trying to figure it out, blah, blah, blah. Then he's like, okay, he's probably chilling at his parties, feeling pretty good. And then I just imagine a whole like spit take. Like he's like mid drink. And then she says that vile Haman and just spews everywhere because it's like, uh oh, something's in trouble now. Um, And so Haman is exposed. I'm super interested too to think about like, what was he thinking in this moment? Um, Was he like uh, scrambling? Was he. was he like searching for empathy? I don't, I really don't know. We don't have a lot of insight into what's going on with him, but I'd like to get fully into the story. So I was trying to think through what Haman would be thinking. Um, but it's really too little, too late. He's begging for his life. Um, and then while he's begging for his life, the king comes back in and thinks that he is assaulting Queen Esther. So we're just like adding up the real struggles here. Um, and the king is increasingly furious. What's interesting to me about this, and we'll come back to this in a little bit, is the fact that when he was like begging for his life, um, it wasn't out of remorse. Like the scripture doesn't say that he was like sorry for what he had done. It was. It says in verse, um, let's see, verse seven. It says, "But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him." Not because he feels remorseful for what happened, but because he was afraid of being harmed. Uh, it reminds me, I uh, teach middle school, and it reminds me of um, students that I have who will, I'll absolutely know they did something wrong, and I'll call them out on it, and I'll talk to them about it, and they just flat out refuse. They just absolutely refuse that they did anything wrong. And then the moment I say, okay, but here's the proof I have that you did it, then all of a sudden it's like the waterworks, the sobbing. And one kid, he's so honest with me, which I love, but one time I was like, I won't say his name, um, Ben, let's pretend it's Ben. Ben? Like, why are you crying? Because you know what you did. And he was like, I'm just mad you caught me. I was like, okay, well, I appreciate your honesty. At least we know where we're at here. Um, But I feel like that's kind of where Haman was at this point, where he was like crying because he got caught and not because he was sorry for what he did. So the king is furious. And then he hangs Haman on the gallows that were for Mordecai. So again, back to the whole movie thing, I feel like it's kind of this full circle thing where you've been going through all the ups and the downs of the movie and the story, and then you like forget about the gallows because you're just glad that Mordecai didn't die on them. Um, And then it's like an end of the movie reveal of like, oh yeah, you remember those gallows that Haman was going to kill Mordecai on? Yeah, flip the tables. Haman actually was killed on those. Um, Harbona comes in with the big reveal of 
oh, by the way, there are gallows already ready. Um, and that's our story. So <laughs> I want to jump into this. Um, as I'm jumping into it, I want to remind us that, um, as Patrick talked about the first week, this is um, a story that we're not sure if it's exactly factual true or if it's more of like a folk tale that was passed down to um, share God's goodness to the people. Either way, I completely agree with Patrick. I don't really think that that matters too much because what matters is the themes that we can draw from it that speak to our life and um, speak to what God is doing. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to draw out some themes from the story um, that are applicable in my life, especially over the past year, and I think will probably um, be applicable to yours as well. And then I'm going to connect it from some other wisdom from scripture because it does connect to so much of what we see. All right. So first things first, God sets it up. While they were talking, well, sorry, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to, ha- even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. As God is setting it up, he is always, always, always on the move. We've just been reading and studying six chapters of Esther and Mordecai setting things up. But let's be honest, we all know that it wasn't just Esther and Mordecai setting things up. God was the one who was setting things up. He did not get to this point casually, accidentally, coincidentally. He put all of this in place. We see that by the fact that... Um, everything worked. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but like this all could have been set up. The fasting and the prayer and everything could have taken place. And at the end, the king still said, oh, hold up. You're a Jew? Nope. Don't like you. Got to go. But that's not what happened. We see God's hand throughout this. Um, I love how just like in chess, like we've been talking about for uh, weeks, that God is putting the right people, places, events, and timings into place. And when I say God sets it up, that can mean any number of things. So it can be a job, a relationship, healing, events going on. I'm sure that we are all sitting here and can come up with something that is kind of our it. God is setting it up. And so as I'm going through and I'm talking about these themes, whatever your it is, I want you to be thinking about that as I talk through it. Um, And then additionally, not only is he always on the move, but he is not done. He is moving even when we cannot see it. Um, One thing that's really cool to me is about five years, maybe six years ago, I was in a really bad spot in life. Um, So I was very much in one of those places where I was asking myself, like, what is even the point? I had gone through a breakup that had really hit some of my deepest insecurities and fears in some ways that I just did not expect. Um, Doors were closing at my job. Doors were closing on the master's degree that I had just finished to get a new job. Doors were closing in my church. Um, In many ways, a lot of this also had to do with the fact that I was a woman, um, which bothered me in a lot of ways. Um, And I, I felt so helpless. I was just very, very, very broken. And so my cousin and her husband um, were uh, attending New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary at the time. And um, they were like, well, just come visit us for a couple of days, like get down here, take a break from everything, get some space, get some perspective, um, and we'll take care of you, which my cousin and her husband are two of my best friends in the world. So I was like, yes, done, I'm coming. So we went down there. We had a lot of good conversations. They spoke some truth to me that I really needed to hear about some pride and some insecurities. um, And they also just loved and encouraged me so much as they always do. Um, But one night uh, they had their small group and they hosted their small community group in their apartment. 
And um, they were like, you can participate, you can not, whatever you want to do. And I was like, yeah, of course I'll come to your community group. So the community group leader comes in and he's like, today we're going to be talking about marriage. And I was like, on second thought, I'm out. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, And so they lived right on campus. And uh, so I just threw on my running clothes. And Rachel, of course, she looked at me and she was like, you can leave. And I was like, "Mm -hmm, I'm going to. Um, And so I threw on my running clothes and I just started running laps around the campus. And when I tell you some of the most vulnerable um, and honest prayers of my life, just tears streaming down my face. I'm sure I looked like a crazy person if people saw me because I was like trying to run fast and also just crying and also like like literally physically calling out to God. And um, so I'm running around the campus and I'm doing this and then I just stopped and I almost collapsed at this point. Um, I still remember exactly where it was on campus and I just stood there and was like, God, just don't be done. Like, it's okay if this is a season. I can process that. I can work through that. I can figure that out. I know you're going to guide me through it but just don't be done. Let the story not stop here. And I prayed that over and over and over again. And again, no bolts of lightning, nothing crazy happened. I prayed the prayer. I cried the tears. When I felt like I had ran enough laps that they were going to be done talking about marriage, I went back to their apartment and I continued on a very tough journey. Um, And I think about that all the time. And the fact that God not being done requires a lot of patience um, my roommate, one of my roommates literally said to me yesterday or maybe two days ago, um, it's scary to do things when you don't know all the pieces, even though we can trust that God is always on the move and that he's strategically setting up those pieces that doesn't feel good in the moment all the time. Um, and the reality is that his timing is not our timing. I would love to tell you that the next day everything got solved. That's not true. That's not what happened. Um, and it can be difficult. But if you don't hear anything else from me today, and I'm going to say it so many times, I want you to hear that he's not done. The story is not over. Um, A scripture verse that really spoke to me um, in thinking about the way that God sets things up is Proverbs 19.21. It's many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We can see this scripture and this theme coming throughout the whole story of Esther that Haman can make plans, the king can make plans, even Esther and Mordecai can make plans but God's plans are the ones that are going to prevail. The second theme I see here is this idea that truth will be revealed. The scripture says, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, spit take, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So the next thing we see here is that truth will be revealed. It's going to happen. Um, What I love about this is that it was going to happen with or without Esther. Mordecai actually tells her that earlier in the book. Um, But that Esther chose and got excited about being obedient and being a part of it. Um, And so the, the thing that I want us to get from this idea that truth will be revealed is that we are called to step out. All the preparation in the world does not matter if we do not move forward. Um, I like to say it's a leap of faith, not a wait 
in faith. Um, and she was terrified to do so. Let's talk about culturally. She was a Jew. She was a woman. We know all the context of the fact that she wasn't even supposed to come before the king. That was scary enough. But then to reveal herself as a Jew and to say, my people are being harmed. My people are being annihilated and I want you to do something about it. This was unbelievably bold for her in a time that is like unprecedented even for us. You know, I talked about earlier that like some of those issues that I was dealing with had to do with the fact that I was a woman. Um, and that doesn't hold a candle to this. She was so terrified and it was so risky, but she did it anyway because she had prayed, because she had fasted, and she was stepping out in faith. I think about the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, I'm sure most of us have seen this movie, Um, which as a side note, it always cracks me up that it's the Last Crusade, and then we have this weird like Crystal Skull Aliens movie coming after it, but you know, whatever. Um, But I love that movie, The Leaf of Faith. And so if you've seen the movie, what happens is he is searching for the Holy Grail, and um, he has to go through these series of like I want to say quests, like a video game, but it's like challenges that he has to get through. And all of them are um, about something that's like faith-based. And so um, like the name of the Lord, uh, he has to step on the stones that like spell out Yahweh. Um, But there's tricky because Hebrew and English is different. It's a whole thing. Um, And then uh, one of the challenges that he gets to is this leap of faith. And so what it looks like to him where he's standing, the perspective in the movie, is that he's supposed to jump over this like impossible, um, I can't even think of the word, chasm, crevasse, yeah, whatever. So he has to jump over this thing that's like huge. You can't do it, you know? And um, the like clue that he has for this is that it's supposed to be a leap of faith. I think it's like from the lion's mouth or like this thing that's behind him. Uh, And so he's like looking at it. He's trying to figure it out. He's sorting it out. And then finally he just has this moment where he like stands up straight and I I can see it clearly in my eyes. He, uh, or in my mind, he like takes a gulp and he closes his eyes and then he reaches out and he steps. And when he steps, it's revealed that there is actually a pathway that was carved exactly the same in the stone. Um, And so even though he couldn't see it, it was there the whole time. Um, Spoiler alert. Sorry. It's been out for a long time. I think we're good. Um, (laughs) But I always think about that when I'm talking about a leap of faith. It's not this thing where we're sitting there thinking like, okay, God, I'm just going to like twiddle my thumbs until you tell me what to do. He certainly wants us to go to him, to pray, to fast, to lean on him, to seek his wisdom. But that doesn't mean he wants us to be paralyzed. I am a firm believer that if we are both seeking his wisdom and putting ourselves humbly before him, And stepping out, not haphazardly, not wildly, like, oh, I'm going to do this crazy thing. I think that'd be fun. But truly saying, I think this is what the Lord's going to do, or what the Lord wants me to do. And I'm going to trust that if it's not, that he's going to guide me in a different way. And then making that step. Um, We don't have to be frozen. I think about, as my friend has been teaching me chess, he's very patient with me. Um, I have this problem where, and my roommates know this and they laugh at me about this, where I uh, don't like to make any decisions until I am confident that it is absolutely 100% the correct decision. And I'm also really impatient. So that works very well together. You know, it's a whole good personality mix. Um, but this comes out when I'm playing chess because I, I know that there is a right move sitting in front of me. And I also know that I'm like just okay enough at chess that if I stared at it long enough, I can probably figure out what that right move is going to be. The problem is when I say stared at long enough, I'm talking like 45 minutes per move, which is um, not fun when you're playing me in chess. <laughs> and so uh, my friend very gently said to me one day, he was like, you know, Kristen, I think 
you might actually enjoy playing speed chess more. And I was like, that sounds like my worst nightmare. What are you talking about? And he was like, well, then you won't be able to second guess yourself. You'll just have to do it. But then you can keep playing a lot of games and learning from it over time rather than just sitting there like stone cold in fear. And I was like, okay, well, that's definitely a spiritual metaphor. And probably the reason Jesus wants me to learn to play chess is so I could learn this right here. Um, but thankfully, God is better at chess than I am. So <laughs> um, when he is waiting and taking time for a move, uh, it's because it's the right move, not because he's paralyzed by fear or because he doesn't know what to do. Um, when I'm taking a lot of time, it's because I don't know what to do. But it's just so cool to me, the fact that, like, okay, unlike me playing chess, like, I'm going to lose to my friend probably every time. Um, God's not going to lose. He already knows the steps. He already knows the moves. And he's just calling us to reach out our hand and pick up the piece. Um, the other thing that I love about the fact that truth is going to be revealed is that truth is going to stand in stark contrast to falsehood. Uh, Esther was able to reveal the truth because she was prepared, because she had sought wisdom. Um, what I don't want you to hear me saying in that first point is like, yeah, do whatever you want. God's in control and he'll figure it out. Um, she had prayed. She had diligently sought wisdom from both um, Mordecai and her people um, and also like going to God himself. Um, in her prayers and in her fasting. This wasn't a haphazard thing. It was with preparation. It was with wisdom. It was with focus. Um, and then we see, on the other hand, we see Haman. Haman, as he's been making decisions throughout the story, has been very focused on um, himself and on what he can do. And uh, he is very much like, I'll try this. I'll try this. I'll do that. And um, they're just so different. And so we're seeing throughout the story the ways that that is finally coming to fruition in this moment where we can see Haman completely scrambling and as a result leading to disaster. And then we see Esther, who is wise, prepared, thoughtful, poised, and God is prevailing through that story. The wisdom that I find in scripture that aligns with this is Proverbs 12, 19. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Okay, so then we get to the third theme, and I just checked the time, so I'm going to keep rolling on this really fast. Um, and the third theme, probably my favorite, is this idea that God is faithful. Um, when the truth is spoken and revealed, he is faithful to bring it to fruition, whatever the it is, whatever you were thinking about earlier, whatever's on your mind, the it God is going to do something with it. I can't promise it's going to look exactly like what you wanted to, but he's not done. The story is not over. The scripture says, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. So we've got these themes so far that God set it up. Truth will be revealed and that he is faithful. Although God is not done now, he will finish in his own time. The good news is that his faithfulness is not like chess. If a move seems disastrous, it's not the end game. He's not finished. He's just setting it up even more. Here we see that he was actually using the pieces um, that have been set up all along. Esther didn't build the gallows. Haman did, but God used it anyway. The irony is not lost. Um, when I think about that story about me traveling to New Orleans, as Patrick mentioned, I actually went back to New Orleans last week to the very same seminary, this time on the board of trustees. That is not lost on me, the irony of what God was doing. Um, five, six, I think it was six years ago when I was in that very broken place of like, God, what are you doing? Why did you give me these giftings if everyone is going to say I can't use them, even when I just want to use them for your glory? I am, when I say I am like nobody on the board of trustees, I'm nobody. Like people don't know me. <laughs> like they don't know my name. My name is never going to be uplifted about that. 
And that is so exciting to me because I get to be a part of the work God is doing in a way that is so completely like him. I went last weekend um, to that exact same spot where I crumbled in the tears. And it was such a cool moment of being able to praise God and to just say, thank you so much for not being done. He wasn't done with my story. He's not done with yours. He's not done with whatever it is. Also, his faithfulness is not dependent on us. Um, when I say to you that I have done nothing to solve the things in my life um, except seek God, like, please hear me say that. I'm hopeless. You can ask my roommates. They live with me. They see all the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've done nothing, yet he remains faithful. I simply reach out, pick up my chest piece, and he does everything else. Uh, it's like we see in Abraham and the covenant um, when, if you don't know the history of uh, the covenant with Abraham, uh, there was a tradition that they had to um, split animals in half. I'll save you the gory details. Um, and then they would pass through the middle of them um, as a way to essentially like sign um, a covenant or a contract. But the cool thing about the story is that when that happened, God made all these promises to Abraham. And then um, Abraham fell asleep. Sounds like me, something I would do. And God passed through by himself. And that was to show the reality that God was going to be fulfilling these promises. That Abraham couldn't hold up his end of the bargain. He wasn't going to. And that didn't matter. That was irrelevant in the story. Because um, as 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He is going to be faithful regardless of where we are. We get the opportunity to step into that, to lean into it, and to be an active part in it. But it's not going to change. His faithfulness is not going to change, even when we are struggling and even when we are incapable of doing anything else. And then the last theme is that we can celebrate his goodness. Um, I'm using uh, Psalm 37 here because uh, it kind of wraps up what's implied. We end with the story of, okay, and then Haman was hanged. Um, and I didn't feel like that was a great way to end this teaching this morning. <laughs> I felt like we could talk about it a little bit more. Um, but I love the fact that it's really like pregnant with this idea of celebration. We know what's coming. It's implied at this point. We can infer that the story is starting to look up. We're starting to wrap things up in a new way than we had been going to at this point. And so I want to um, jump into Psalm 37 and talk about um, how we can celebrate uh, his faithfulness and what he's doing. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. I'll be honest with you, I'm in another season of crumbling right now. There's some things that are going on in my life that I'm sitting around doing, like sitting around wondering like, okay, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? What's happening right now? Because I didn't plan for this. I don't like this. I didn't want this. What are you doing? And I think that when we come into those seasons, because until eternity, they're going to keep coming. The story is not going to be over on this side of eternity. But we can look to the ways that his story wasn't, that he wasn't done in the past to help us remember that he's not done in the future. I often think back to this whole New Orleans prayer that I prayed and the way that God was faithful then. We can take heart 
He's overcome the world. We can be encouraged because he has done what he said he would do, and he can do it again. Um, the celebration doesn't quite happen yet for the characters in our story, but it does start to happen for the reader. It starts to happen for us because we're starting to see the victory of what God is doing. And often that's how it is with life. It's actually sometimes easier to see and celebrate other people's stories um, when we're in the moment of feeling like we can't see or celebrate our own. I love Psalm 37 so much because so, so often in scripture we see like what we're commanded to do. So to trust in the Lord, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness, commit your way to the Lord. But it also tells us what's going to happen. <laughs> that doesn't always happen in scripture. I love in Psalm 37. It tells us all these things and it says, he will give you the desires of your heart. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. He's not done. The story is not over. I'm not going to stand here and pretend like I know what it is. <laughs> um, as someone who's right in the middle of it, who's preaching more to myself this morning than anybody else. Um, but I know that he's not done and that he's doing something. Um, I want to close with Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. It starts with, but this I call to mind. And that's what I was trying to get us to do is to call to mind his faithfulness in the past. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. God, thank you so much um, for your faithfulness, especially your faithfulness um, when we're feeling pretty faithless. For the fact that you give hope when no hope can be seen. Uh, for the fact that you are not done and you are active. That just like we saw in Esther's story, um, you were moving the pieces all along and you're doing the same thing in our lives. You're doing it both for our good, but also for your glory, Lord. Um, I'm so blessed by this story that, that ultimately brings glory to you. That um, Esther and Mordecai were important in the story, but they were not the whole story. You were. Um, I ask that you would be our whole story, that you would work, that you would reveal truth in your own timing, and that you would be faithful in all things. Help us to celebrate um, the good things that you've done, to celebrate what you're doing in the lives of those around us, and to see it so clearly when you're moving those pieces for us. In Jesus' name, amen.